Welcome to Technovation. I'm your host, Peter High. My guest today is Steve Case. Steve co-founded AOL in 1985, and that company would become a foundational organization of the internet age. AOL was the first internet company to go public and one of the best performing stocks of the 1990s. At its peak, nearly half of internet users in the US use AOL. In 2000, Steve negotiated the, the largest merger in business history, bringing together AOL and Time Warner in a transaction that gave AOL shareholders a majority stake in the combined company. For the past 15 years, Steve has led Revolution, a Washington, D.C.-based investment firm that now backs entrepreneurs at every stage of their development. Revolution Growth has invested in nearly a billion dollars in growth stage companies, including organizations like Sweetgreen, Tempest, Tala, DraftKings, and Clear. He's particularly passionate about funding companies outside of the traditional VC epicenters of California, Massachusetts, and New York. And he has a fund and a book, both called The Rise of the Rest. Uh, the book came out uh, just a couple of months ago in, in late 2022. Uh, Steve, welcome back to Technovation. It's great to speak with you again. Great to be with you again. But first, a quick word from our partner, Adyen, and the company's chief operating officer, Cameron Zaki. Adyen is a payment platform company that allows businesses to accept e-commerce, mobile, and point-of-sale payments. And Cameron wanted to provide a short overview of what Adyen has to offer. Cameron, over to you. Thanks, Peter. It's one global platform on which you can do many continents and countries, all the relevant payment methods, which vary significantly across different parts of the world to online and physical world or mobile. And we've continued to expand from there. If you go to a dinner party and people ask you what you do and you say this, they're like, that sounds like common sense. Why is it unique? The reality is that a lot of the players who've been around for decades have grown on mainframe computing, releasing once or twice a year, buying other companies, and then they give you one API. But behind the scenes, it's a bit of a spaghetti mess, unfortunately. What Adyen did and what we do is sort of really do the backend plumbing that is a little less sexy at times, but really makes the difference in being able to say, hey, it was Peter. Do you know that he, you know, shops online and on mobile and in your store and you can recognize him and you can connect all the dots and it's not just enabling the payment but it's hey how do you factor that into loyalty and marketing and all kinds of other use cases thanks cameron and now on to the interview well, I thought, let's begin, if you don't mind, Steve, with just sort of some foundational items uh, that you address in the book itself. Uh, first of all, even today, 75% uh, of VC goes to three states, and actually a large majority of that really to three cities in those three states, or three, I should say, metropolitan areas in those uh, three states, the, the Bay Area, uh, New York City, and Boston, uh, and, and the metroplexes around them. I first of all, how did that come to pass? Why did those three areas come to dominate so much? And then, of course, I'd love to get into some of your uh, um, uh, um, the thesis behind your book around some some of what might uh, perhaps pry loose some of that venture capital into some other states as well. Well, first, I think it's worth pointing out that venture capital as sort of a strategy, almost an asset class is a relatively recent phenomenon, started a little over a half century ago, and initially started in New York and Boston and San Francisco. And so started, you started seeing some clustering around there. And then the successes of certain companies led to other companies starting, creating kind of this increasing returns network effect you know, dynamic, which it led those three, as you say, really metropolitan areas to really become uh, so, so, so dominant. Uh, and, and good for them. Uh, they, they, obviously, a lot of great companies are starting and scaling in, the, in those cities. But it is remarkable that we have this big country and dozens and dozens of other cities, but most of the venture capital has, has still been concentrated in those three. As a result, 
uh, one of the things, I, and I did write about this in the book, is there's a brain drain from different parts of the country where people feel like they kind of have to leave to go to one of those, you know, kind of hubs if they really want to participate in sort of the innovation economy, the startup uh, sector. And that just strengthens those cities, but disadvantages the the other cities in the middle of the country. That started to change in the last uh, decade. I think the pandemic was definitely an accelerator, sort of a tipping point. Uh, but there's still a lot of work to do to really make sure everybody everywhere, they have an idea, they have the opportunity to start a company, create jobs, and 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 really renew their communities. And how did the idea come to you and to your colleagues? The, the notion of the rise of the rest. The reason for it is 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 clear. Right? You you alluded to it. In fact, in your response there, that you know, no one part or no three parts of the the country should dominate when it comes to innovation and opportunity. Um, so counterbalancing that, or at least creating better balance around the country, is certainly a, a worthy. Uh, area to, to attempt to tackle. Why you? Why, why, why did? Why was this an area that you were so passionate about? Well, I sort of stumbled into this. This, this found me. Uh, it, it started a little over a decade ago when I was asked to co-chair uh, something called the National Advisory Council on Innovation and Entrepreneurship. Uh, and that led to some recommendations, one of which was to, that the White House, then President Obama, launched an effort called Startup America. And they did, and they asked me to chair that. And then I worked on his Jobs and Competitiveness Council, leading some of the efforts, particularly around entrepreneurship uh, innovation. Uh, and so all those things, and, and, and even though they were a little more policy focused, uh, opened my eyes to the, the one point we just talked about, the fact that 75% of capital goes to just three states. And the second was how central new companies, startups were in terms of job creation. Uh, I, I didn't fully understand it, but the data is that small business accounts for a lot of jobs but as a sector doesn't grow a lot of jobs. You know, a restaurant goes out of business, gets replaced by another restaurant, will hire about the same number of people. Uh, and big business, Fortune 500, as a sector doesn't uh, account for a lot of uh, net job growth either, because there are some companies growing rapidly like an Amazon, but there are also some companies declining like you know Kmart and Sears and others over the last you know, couple of decades. So if you add up all the increases and all the decreases, it ends up as a sector not really being a, a net job creator. So it's it's the new businesses, companies under five years old that are the major you know, job creators. So once I realized that, and then you connect it to the the idea that you know venture capital is only going to or dominantly going to just three places, you say, well, there's a problem there that needs some attention, uh, but it's also an opportunity. And that led us to start launching our Rise of Rest bus tours over eight years ago and then led to launching the Rise of Rest fund about five years ago and more recently led to writing the book because after spending better part of the decade traveling around, visiting hundreds and hundreds of you know, companies in dozens and dozens of cities. I just found these stories remarkable. But when I'd come back and talk to people about it, people had no idea what was happening in, in most of these cities. And I just felt like, you know, it was time to tell those stories. Yeah, really fantastic and incredibly inspiring stories you tell so nicely in, in, in your latest book. I, I wanted to ask you, as you contemplated the bus tour and engaging different cities and entrepreneurs in those cities more specifically, um, a, 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 on top of having diagnosed what has worked well in those, those areas where investment has flowed, I wonder how you thought about the sequence of events that would make this sticky in a place. It's all well and good to get on a bus and to create some attention and to identify some people who are willing to take some risks and have some some good ideas and give them some capital and so forth. But um, you know, how have you thought about the engagement of government, the role that universities in those cities uh, play, the you know other sorts of structural 
um, advancement that, that, that could stimulate this such that it would be um, lasting as opposed to ephemeral? No, I totally agree. And we, our team, before we would go to a city, would spend six plus months uh, doing research, visiting, advancing the city, meeting people, including exactly the people you're talking about, the mayor, the, the university you know, president, some of the CEOs of some of the, the, the big, big companies, as well as obviously some of the, the entrepreneurs. And we we're just trying to understand what some of the dynamics were. And in almost every case, we saw an opportunity to, to drive more collaboration in the community. The interesting people are doing interesting things, but they weren't as collaborative as we thought they needed to be to really have dramatic and sustainable you know, impact. So that's been one of the, the messages when we're, when we're visiting a city, we try to you know, connect people to each other and, and make sure people understand what, what everybody's doing and can work together in a much more uh, collaborative, kind of integrated you know, kind of way. Uh, so that does create more sustainable change. And then after we leave, we obviously stay closely connected to, to all those different you know, constituencies. So we we can really have a, a, really, you know, a sense that we're really making a, an impact over the long run. It's not just a one-off visit to a, a city. It's the work before we get there, as well as what we're doing when we're there, but most importantly, in the years after we visit. Yeah, very interesting. And, and where did the idea to travel by bus come from? Talk a bit about the, the genesis of that idea and the, the rationale in doing it in that way. Well, actually, when I mentioned the Startup America partnership that I was sharing, uh, we had launched essentially different chapters in different states around the country, and they all were doing different things. And actually, the the Startup Maryland group did a bus in in, in Maryland to, you know, to shine a spotlight on what was happening in different startup you know, cities within within you know, that particular state. And we said, well, that's, that seemed like a good idea. Why don't we do that? But rather than just limit it to one state, why don't we do it all across the, the country? So we launched our first uh, those ride the rest bus tours uh, uh, eight years ago went to Detroit, Pittsburgh, Cincinnati, Nashville, uh, and when we were doing the first one, frankly, we didn't know exactly what we're getting into. We thought it'd be an interesting experiment, uh, but once we were there, we realized something was bubbling, and, and that our, you know, our the, the way we could could shine a spotlight on the cities and the entrepreneurs in those cities was was constructive. And some of the things we talked about around you know driving more collaboration were were also kind of helpful. So then we continued, and now we've done these bus tours in in dozens of cities, and our ride rest fund is now invested in over two hundred companies and more than a hundred cities. So it really is a very broad-based effort. And we do that in partnership with over 300 regional venture firms. So a lot of it's about building networks, uh, not, no, not that different than the early days of AOL and the internet. We were about building networks then to stand up the internet, to build the on-ramps of the internet, to create the reason why people wanted to be on the internet. Uh, you know, the focus around Rise of Rest is similarly focused around building networks, but this is more to level the playing field. So people with ideas have an opportunity to start and scale companies wherever they happen to, to live. Very interesting. And, and talk a bit about the, the the VCs that you would you would uh, partner with. Um, how so? So I think to some at least they might be surprised that there are so many on the other end of of uh, the the cities that you were visiting uh, who who would be there to provide some of that foundation. How did you find them? Talk a bit about. Obviously, these would presumably be less than brand names among those who might be familiar with the venture capital community. Um, you talk a bit about those partnerships and what you're seeing in terms of the the, the venture space in non-traditional places. Well, one of the uh, things that was super encouraging, we did a report with PitchBook last year called Beyond Silicon Valley. And one of the findings was in the last decade, 
1,400 new venture firms have started in Rise of the Rest cities, cities outside of San Francisco, New York City, Boston, the, the, the three tech hubs we talked about, 1,400. So now there are venture capital uh, firms in, in most cities in, in the country. That was not true 10 years ago. So that's another kind of surprise to people. And, and so we've been identifying who in each city are really the, the leaders in those cities and trying to establish relationships with them, whether we're visiting by bus or not. A lot of our, like most of our investments have come, have nothing to do with a, you know being on a bus. They've come from the network we built and the relationships with these hundreds of different uh, venture firms. And in terms of brandy, it's fair to say they're generally not as well known as the iconic Silicon Valley brands, a, a, a Sequoia or Kleiner Perkins or, or Benchmark or, or Andreessen or others. But in those cities, they're actually quite well known. They, they, and, and sometimes in some of these ride the rest cities, they're better known than some of those Silicon Valley investors because the entrepreneurs in those cities don't necessarily have connections to those Silicon Valley investors. So it's been bubbling over the last uh, decade. I think it really bodes well because as these these venture firms launch initial funds, which tend to be you know modestly sized initial kind of first time funds and have success, they're able to raise larger successor funds. And over time, that means more capital is going into the, the entrepreneurs in those particular regions of the of the country. And then at, at the, it gets to the later stage. It's sort of, there's that seed stage and then the venture stage and then the growth stage. As it gets into that later growth stage, the coastal investors do tend to pay more uh, attention. But at the earliest stage, the seed stage, and even to a large extent, the venture stage, it really is helpful to have you know, regional venture firms kind of taking the lead with companies in, in their geographies. When you do the uh, the bus tour, which you've been doing for most of the past decade, talk a bit about the sequence of events, like what what you do. And and I realize, of course, as you pointed out earlier, there's a lot of pre work that happens. Uh, so it's not as though that's the first time uh, any representative from from Revolution is rolling into town. Uh, but talk a bit about uh, how you structure the time when you do visit one of the cities, like the ones you've mentioned. Well, it's a pretty full day. These are these are it's pretty busy. We get up early and have a a breakfast inviting community leaders, CEOs, mayors, people like that to, to join us and, and start talking about some of the challenges that that particular city has as it relates to startups, but also some of the things that are going well and opportunities to build on some of those uh, strengths. And then we you know load up the bus and we we, we pack it pretty pretty tightly and we start doing a, 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 a what we call a startup crawl through the city, stopping at various you know, you know, companies or accelerators or incubators or universities and a lot of different things that we, we include in that. Then we have a, a, a lunch session again that brings a lot of different people together because it goes it goes back to this point I made earlier about the importance of connecting people and driving more you know collaboration. And then in the afternoon usually do some press interviews with the with the local media in particular. Sometimes we have national media with us a few years ago, 60 Minutes joined us for uh, the, one of the uh, tours and ended up doing a, a story on it. And that's a way to spotlight these cities and spotlight these entrepreneurs and help get them more visibility, both locally and, and uh, nationally. And then we do a pitch competition. And we, we uh, you know, before we come, we announce we're coming and typically around 100 startups apply to pitch. Uh, we pick the top eight or 10 to be on stage. We have hire a pitch coach to help each of them create a, 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 a tight presentation to really sell their vision and sell why they are, should be the winner of that pitch competition. We have a team of local judges as well as uh, some folks and obviously me and other people on our team are, are part of as well. Uh, and then we decide to, uh, which of the companies is most promising and we invest $100,000 in that company. But usually what happens is others then want to also invest in those companies. And often we end up investing in more than one and others in the audience 
also end up backing uh, more companies. And so it's a way to catalyze not just one winner, but there's multiple winners because they're all getting the benefit of, of that visibility. And sometimes that gives them access to capital they otherwise wouldn't have. And then we end it with a big you know, kind of party celebrating what's happening in, in that city. And then we get on the bus and drive to the next city. So that's uh, how the tours generally have been organized. That's fantastic. I appreciate that overview. You you talk about, and it's certainly a thread so far in, in our all of our conversation, uh, is this importance of partnership. You are a you know, legendary tech entrepreneur yourself. So not surprisingly, a lot of the uh, companies, if not most of the companies you're investing in have, have technology as a backbone. But you, you mentioned how uh, technology is the table stake and its partnerships um, around technology that, that really determine the uh, success or lack thereof of, of an organization, uh, of an entrepreneurial venture. And we've talked about the necessity for partnerships with universities, with cities, um, with venture capital, uh, et cetera. You also talk about some of the advantages that certain geographies have industry-wise, like, for example, healthcare in Minnesota with the Mayo Clinic and United Health Group, uh, both being in that that state, uh, among others that you you provide examples of. Talk a bit about, as you think about those partnerships, other ways in which you, you've thought about uh, developing a curetsu or an ecosystem uh, that favors um, certain venture, ventures uh, in certain you know, industries that they're, they're, they're uh, focused on. Yeah, a bunch of really important ideas there. The first is we definitely believe in the power of partnerships, the power of networks, and even this African proverb that I love, if you want to go quickly, you can go alone, but if you want to go far, you must go together. That really drives a lot of our work. And it was essential in the early days of the internet. When we started AOL in 1985, only 3% of people are online. Those 3% were online an average of one hour a week. Most people didn't see the reason to be online and it required a partnership. We have over 200 partnerships at, at AOL to really you know, be ultimately be successful. Without those partnerships, we never would have uh, survived, let alone uh, thrive. So I saw firsthand the, the value of those partnerships and we've seen that in other things we've done over the years. So we brought that bias to what we were doing with, uh, with, with Rise of the Rest. And, uh, building on the other point you made, it's it's, it's super important is that the cities in these these rise rest cities have some natural advantages uh, and industries that have you know re- deep roots in those communities, and that's going to become more important as this next phase of companies do recognize that partnerships are important. Uh, we've gotten in the early days of the internet, I said partnerships are very important. In the last 20 years, they were less important. Some of the most iconic companies, Facebook and, and, and Google and others didn't really have partnerships. They just launched a, 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 an app or a service that it, it got, caught on, spread virally, and suddenly they were a significant you know, company. Uh, partnerships are gonna be very important in, in healthcare, very important in food and agriculture, very important in many of the sectors up for grabs. And I think having expertise in those industries and connections in those industries and credibility in those industries will advantage you as a as an entrepreneur and being closer to those companies in terms of where you're located likely will also advantage you. So that's why there's an opportunity in these Rise of the Rest cities to really accelerate the growth of the startup hubs in, in those cities, talk, focused on some of these you know, big industries that are now up for, up for grabs in terms of re- being reimagined. That's very interesting. I, I couldn't help you tell you tell great stories across the book of of the cities you visited and your experiences there and and examples of what's brewing in those places. It brought to mind that uh, uh, this is sort of the antidote to that New Yorker, that famous New Yorker comic where you have you know the uh, the New Yorker's point of view of what the U.S. is like, and it's basically New York City, and then you know in California, nothing in between. Uh, and and you're basically you're pulling the 
the country apart uh, to make sure that people are seeing all the different nooks and crannies and the special things that are happening across the across the U.S. I wonder, as I say, there are so many great stories you tell across a variety of cities that you visit, many cities that you visited, and as you mentioned, 100 that you've invested in, uh, uh, cities that is represented among your investments. I wonder if you could share a, a couple of your favorite stories um, uh, of places you visited and ex- success stories associated with this. Well, I, I could go go on for hours on this, and that's ultimately <laughs> why I wrote the book. But I'll give you a, a few. In Atlanta, there's a company called Hermius uh, that spun out of Georgia Tech uh, that's focused on Mach 5 engines and planes. So, so you get from Atlanta to Europe in, in 90 minutes. The Air Force is a really big uh, uh, customer of theirs because the Air Force obviously likes to move things quickly. And they're benefiting from the uh, Atlanta being an aerospace hub and Georgia Tech having tremendous expertise in that particular sector. So that's an example. We talk about a company like that. And, you know, people would probably assume it's in Silicon Valley, would be surprised that it's in uh, Atlanta. There's a company in, in uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee called Freightwaves that developed a data platform, almost like a Bloomberg system for the trucking and logistics industry. And I didn't notice that we we're in Chattanooga on our Rise of Rest bus, but most of the big trucking companies in America are headquartered in Chattanooga. So we're building Bloomberg for trucking, better to be in Chattanooga than New York City or, or, or San Francisco, because they're building on that, that expertise and able to capitalize on that. Another great story is there was a, a, a guy who was working in San Francisco at the time for a hedge fund in San Francisco, Carter Malloy, uh, and decided to start a company called Acre Trader, which essentially is a platform to allow people to invest in farmland, which would allow the investors to diversify and also allow farmers to get capital to, to grow. And he said, if I'm going to create this platform, you know, the first step is getting farmers to believe in me, get farmers to trust me. So he moved back home to Arkansas. He was from Arkansas to, and, and moved, started Acre Trader in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and that scaled quite dramatically. So that's another example of, of, of the value of place, the advantage of place. And sometimes it ends up being sort of serendipitous or maybe accidental. There's a, a founder, Megan Glover, outside of outside of Indianapolis, that five, six years ago was concerned about water quality. At the time, there was this big uh, crisis around Flint, Michigan, and, and their, their issues with, with water safety. And so she called her, her water company and said, I want to get my water tested. And they said, well, we actually don't do that for you know, individual you know, consumers. And she was really shocked by that and decided to start a company called 120 Water to provide a, a, a kit for, for consumers that was affordable and convenient. And now it's even expanded to provide that service to cities, including cities like, like San Francisco. So that was a case of uh, entrepreneur seeing a problem and deciding to do something about it by by creating a company and probably because Indianapolis was not that far from Flint, Michigan, she was more likely to be thinking about that than if she'd been in, in Silicon Valley or, 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 or some other place. So those are a few of the, of the, of the stories of the dozens of others in, 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 in the book, but all of them have what unites them is they're interesting entrepreneurs tackling interesting problems that they see as being interesting, compelling opportunities to build companies. And they see the place where they are or the place where they choose to move to as an advantage as opposed to a disadvantage. Uh, very interesting. Well, and you, of course, are um, an entrepreneur at heart yourself, somebody who's who has uh, uh, been a very successful entrepreneur, to say the least. And, and I wonder, especially um, as somebody who's lived that life, um, what, what do you look for as the 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 ingredients of of uh, a successful entrepreneur, there are a number of obviously uh, many different companies you you review and and you invest in a select few. What are some of the differentiating factors of the leadership teams that you look for uh, that excite you enough to make an investment? 
Well, because you said this in the introduction, because at Revolution, we have the Rise Rest Seed Fund, as well as Revolution Ventures and the later stage Revolution Growth Fund. We think about the answer to that question differently at those different uh, different uh, stages. Obviously, the later stage are real businesses that have been around for a bunch of years, have, have really built you know significant you know, teams. And the question there is how big can they be? And with an infusion of capital, maybe some additional partnerships, can they really accelerate their growth and capture more, more, more market share. Conversely, at the really early seed stage, which is what we're focused on with with the uh, with Rise Rest, these are you know companies that are just emerging. So the set of questions we ask are a little bit different. One is an obvious one, but what what problem are you trying to solve? What is the big idea? What is sort of the why is this something important? Why is this a, a company that has the potential to be, be significant uh, over time? So just getting clarity on on kind of is it a battle worth fighting? Is it a mountain worth climbing is is the first step. Then it quickly goes to the team, not just the entrepreneur, by the way, but the team, because we've learned that entrepreneurship is a team sport. So depending on what you're tackling, whether it's healthcare or financial service, what have you, do you have some people that bring some fresh insights, fresh perspectives, but also complement that with people who have some expertise in the sector and some credibility in the in the sector? So do you have the right mix of, of talent on that team to really take that idea and, and scale it? And also, we're just looking for, even though it may be early, early days, some evidence that there really is product market fit. There's something about uh, how you decide to, to turn the, your idea into a, a product, into a, a service that's starting to get some, some traction. The last one goes back to the earlier point we talked about is, are there partnerships that you form that really could be uh, pivotal in terms of accelerating your growth? Or do you have an idea, a theory of the case of which partnerships, if you could form them, really could result in you achieving significant uh, scale and significant success? So those are some of the things that we're looking at at that early stage. That's really interesting. A couple of years ago, I, I interviewed uh, Bill Peduto, the, the former mayor of Pittsburgh. You you probably have met, I'm sure, along your your travels. And he shared some really fascinating anecdotes about the evolution of that city. And, you know, he, he remember he shared an anecdote that in 1979, the Steelers won the Super Bowl and the Pirates won the World Series and the company, uh, the city rather almost almost went bankrupt. Uh, yeah. But due to great governance at the time, he was, of course, not the mayor back then, uh, but but a, a succession of really forward thinking mayors, they recognized the uh, the ingredients they had, the special attributes, whether it's Carnegie Mellon as a great university, a, a, a city that was used to building things. And so thinking about, you know, hardware as, a, as, the, as perhaps a part of the technology that they could be particularly well suited to. And of course, then having uh, uh, putting necessary ingredients in place to provide incentives for entrepreneurs to live their entrepreneurial dreams in that city. Um, you know, you, you've, you've met with, as you mentioned before, and a lot of this work happening before your tours commence, uh, uh, government officials in various cities. Talk about the role that local government plays. People always say that in some ways that's the most influential of all government because it can be, it, it, it's it's a little bit more of a speedboat relative to the, you know, the the freighter, the the oil tanker that is the the federal government. Talk about some of the, what you've seen as, um, you know, positive aspects of what city leaders can do in order to stimulate this. Well, first, uh, at Pittsburgh, it's interesting you, you mentioned that because that was the second city we visited on our first Rise of Rest tour. The first city was Detroit, and both of them were interesting because they were iconic cities that a century ago really were in some ways, the Silicon Valley of their time, Detroit, when the auto was the was the hot technology of the day, Pittsburgh, obviously, kind of with the steel industry, kind of you know, powering the industrial revolution. So they really were dominant cities, but had fallen into some 
you know, decline in, in the last half century. The difference between the two, as you just stated, was Pittsburgh several decades ago recognized they were in this decline and worked together in a collaborative way to to build on some of their assets, including some of the industries. And as you mentioned, Carnegie Mellon and, and, and had more momentum. Detroit did not do that until about you know, 10 years ago and fell into decline, actually lost 60 percent of its population in a half a century. And the year before we rolled in on our rise red bus, the city of Detroit went bankrupt. So it shows you from 100 years ago being this dominant, you know, kind of tech hub to, to being bankrupt. But the great thing what's happened in, in the past decade, we backed a number of companies, there's StockX and Shinola and, and Guardhat and others. It's now really scaling nicely. I was just in Detroit a couple of weeks ago as part of this book tour. And a, a city that 10 years ago, a downtown area that was largely vacant is now largely full. And there's a vitality now that's happening. So it shows you how these things can change in, in, in uh, you know, relatively quickly. And the other part of your question, is we have visited now with a lot of mayors, a lot of governors, talked to a lot of uh, senators and, and members of, of, of the House. And they, it's good to see the progression over the last decade of people focusing on the role that startups play in revitalizing communities, creating jobs, driving economic growth. When we had started 10 years ago, most of the attention was on economic development through the prism of big companies, trying to lure a big company to move their headquarters or a big company to open a, a factory. And there's always going to be some aspect of that that is going to get attention. But in recent years, we've been more and more focused on launching new companies, some of which have the potential to be big companies and trying to figure out how to build on some of the unique assets of that particular city or region, including the, the universities there, including some of the big legacy companies there. How do you win the battle for talent so you don't have people leaving your city, you have people moving to your city? How do you win the battle for capital so more venture capitalists, both locally and around the country, are paying attention to what's happening in, in the cities? How do you drive more of that collaboration we talked about before? All those things are, are things that the mayors and governors are doing, generally speaking, are doing a much better job on now than they were, were 10 years ago. And it's promising as we think about this, this, this next decade. Yeah, really interesting examples and the, the, the profound role that they can play. Um, I, I thought it was also interesting, in addition to highlighting greater uh, geographic diversity, you, you um, develop a number of stories that also highlight entrepreneurs that are diverse in other ways. Uh, much more so than for than the the time when you started a company when 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 most uh, entrepreneurs were were male and most were white. Um, talk a bit about what you see as progress that has been made in terms of a greater level of diversity, whether that's gender diversity or or um, ethnicity, et cetera, um, uh, race, and so forth. Uh, the, the progress you're seeing in terms of having a more diverse array of entrepreneurs uh, that are that are driving the growth you've described. Well, I will talk about some of the positives, but first, I uh, just set the table and focusing on some of the challenges, some of the, some of the negatives, it, it, which is, I think, a, should be a wake-up call to everybody. Women are 50% of our population. Female founders get less than 10% of venture capital. Latinos are 18% of our population. Latino founders get less than 2% of venture capital. And Black Americans are 13% of our population. Black founders get less than 1% of venture capital. So this issue of, of leveling the playing field, not just around place, which, you know, which was where we started with Rise of Rest, it's, it's also evolved to be around people and trying to, to back a diverse array of, of uh, entrepreneurs. Some of the cities in the, these Rise of Rest cities do tend to be more diverse, so that's helpful. But our team has also been very intentional when we're visiting a city, You know, where, where do we go? Who, who's pitching on, on stage? How do we connect to different networks in those cities to have the broadest possible 
you know, kind of, you know, connectivity to entrepreneurs and, and, and their ideas. And as a result, our Rise Rest Fund is doing better than most venture funds. Over 40% of our investments are female founders or founders of color, but it's still not anywhere where what it needs to be. So there needs to be much more intentionality so that you really are not just backing pe- certain kinds of people in certain kinds of places, but you're opening up your mind, opening up your aperture, opening up your on-ramp in terms of deal flow to a wide range of people and a wide range of of places, so a little bit more attention on that now than than we than we saw before. Uh, but there's still, frankly, a lot of work to work to be done in the in the next few years to really change that dynamic and really level the playing field in all these different respects. Yeah, very interesting. I, you alluded also earlier, Steve, to uh, the pandemic as an accelerator and and how it's changed in some ways. Of course, where work is done. Uh, there's potentially an argument. Some some have certainly ar- ar- um, argued it. In fact, that the uh, necessity of place, especially in a in a scenario where uh, more people are working virtually and and more people are primarily working virtually, uh, becomes less important. There's of course a lot of people who would argue the opposite as well. I wonder your your own perspective. How have you seen? Um, the pandemic change things or not change things in terms of what the, the necessary ingredients to help uh, help founders help help companies grow to become successful businesses. What are some of your insights? Well, there? I think the pandemic has been a, a, a shake the snow globe moment for the world, and you know, we were all forced to quickly hunker down. You know, those who were not familiar with you know Zoom and other uh, you know conferencing technology suddenly had to. Uh, embrace it because that was the only way to connect to people, the only way to continue to operate, whether irrespective of what you were doing. Uh, and while it was a, a sudden, a sort of abrupt adjustment, generally people found it worked pretty well. And generally people found it gave them some flexibility that they previously didn't, you know, really understand they could pursue, whether it be for individuals or for or for organizations. Uh, now we've moved into a, a phase which is I wouldn't necessarily call it post-pandemic, but but is a different different phase. Or where we're trying to adjust in terms of what what should work be. I don't think there would be that many companies that are going back to what it was before five days in the office. There also won't be that many companies that are fully remote or remote only you know, companies. We back some, but but it, it's not the majority. Most will be somewhere in the middle that are operating with some version of, of hybrid where, where there's some remote work and some in-person work. And everybody's figuring this out and it kind of depends on the stage of the company and what your challenges are, what opportunities you're pursuing uh, in terms of what 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 the right mix is. But the, it has been a, a real un- unlock in terms of the sense that you had to be in a place like a, like a Silicon Valley in order to be part of the innovation economy. Now you do have more flexibility uh, in terms of where you want to work, and whether it's uh, you know kind of a few days or or more or more frequently than that. I think that's going to be helpful. We also saw during the last uh, two or three years a dispersion of talent. Some of the people that left certain places decided to return. So we essentially were seeing a slowing of the brain drain and an acceleration of the boomerang of talent. That's been positive. The other thing that's been positive is historically venture capitalists in places like Silicon Valley said to entrepreneurs, if you want to get our money, you have to come to us and pitch to us in person in our office. Uh, well, they couldn't do that anymore. They too had to embrace Zoom. And once they were doing pitch meetings by Zoom, it dawned on them after you know a, a few weeks that they also could be connecting to entrepreneurs anywhere in the in the country, perhaps anywhere in the world, 
via Zoom. So that expanded their aperture and did lead to some firms that had traditionally only invested in certain places to invest more more broadly. So it's been interesting to see how this plays out. It's, I think, going to take a few more years for it to settle out. But I think it will be a, a net positive in terms of some of these dynamics around the rise of the rest. Uh, as we're having this conversation, it appears as though we're, there are economic headwinds ahead of us, a number of dynamics, exogenous factors that will determine the success or lack thereof, especially for, for venture-backed organizations that are you know, sort of clawing their way to developing successful uh, pathways uh, um, uh, for themselves. I wonder how, as you think about you know the, the the economic headwinds, the inflation, the downstream impacts, the war on Ukraine. Not that I'm asking you to comment on all of the above, but just the just the fact that there are all these sort of black swan events that are happening at once. Um, how that has you thinking about how to invest, the pace of investment, what might have changed in in recent months as a result of all these exogenous factors. Well, since I've been at this for a while, a few decades, I've lived through a number of cycles, including the the dot-com boom, where our company I went public in 1992, and the market value was $70 million, and eight years later, it was $160 billion, and then after things crashed, it declined precipitously. So I've seen a few of these uh, cycles, and I actually was surprised a year or two ago how strong the public markets were, uh, how, how the valuations of the late-stage private companies did strike me as uh, you know, a little frothy. Uh, and so I wasn't frankly surprised when there was a, a, a correction. It had been a 13 plus year bull market run. And at some point it was going to you know, turn. So that, that's not a you know, big surprise. What's happening right now, based on what we can see, is, is a couple of dynamics. One is the entrepreneurs in places like Silicon Valley that kind of got used to being able to raise pretty much however much money they wanted to raise and always at a pretty good valuation and up round versus the previous valuations. It's been a pretty uh, you know, brutal kind of a wake up call for them because they've had to quickly adjust and, 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 and uh, because they had you know, less, of a, less of a path to raise additional capital, often had to cut back in terms of their expenditures, team, thing, things like that. There was some of that for sure in other parts of the country, but a little less of it because entrepreneurs in these rise of rest cities Always had trouble raising capital. Always had to had to you know kind of settle for a more you know more uh, reasonable you know, valuation, and always therefore had more of a bootstrap mentality. We're more capital efficient, and so for them, it's been a little less abrupt in terms of the reset. That's not to say they don't have some challenges, but but because when the economy moves like this, everybody has some challenges. But on a relative basis, it, it's a different set of uh, challenges. And the other point I'd make is when. And we're already seeing this with some of the bigger companies. When when times get a little tougher and people need to tighten or feel they need to tighten things up, maybe revenues are softer and, and they need to tighten some of their spending, often the first thing to cut or one of the first things to cut are the long-term innovation initiatives that they think makes sense, but are, aren't, they're not sure about and will take at least five, sometimes 10 years to, to pay off. Those are you know, generally easy things to cut when 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 you have to look for things to cut. As a result, when that happens, and that likely will accelerate in the next you know couple of years, uh, that creates an opening, a vacuum, if you will, for entrepreneurs challenging some of those incumbents. So it actually could lead to the next few years a, a really uh, 
uh, some terrific years for entrepreneurs and terrific years for for venture capitalists if they're capitalizing on some of those opportunities of a little bit less competition, including from the incumbents. And they are smart about whatever capital they are able to raise to be more efficient around deploying that, taking a kind of long term view, not just focusing on growth at all costs, but trying to to grow the companies while also being being responsible about managing expenditures. Very interesting. Uh, Steve, you and I both live in the D.C. area. And uh, you must take great pride in the number of former colleagues of yours at AOL who've gone on to found co- great companies in this city. A lot of uh, people, uh, p- p- rightfully so, have AOL as sort of ground zero for the tech community. Uh, not that it didn't exist at all before AOL, of course, technology broadly defined, but so many companies that were uh, founded as a result of great leaders who once were at AOL. I- I'm curious, just your own sort of thoughts about the evolution of the tech community here in the district and, and the surrounding areas of Virginia and Maryland. Well, I think it did inform a lot of my thinking around the rise of rest and I think passion and empathy for the entrepreneurs in these other places, because as you were mentioning, when we were getting started in the 1980s, a lot of great things about D.C., but at the time, there was not much of a startup community. There was not you know, much in the way of, of venture capital. All the venture capital we raised came from other parts of the, the country, none of it from the D.C. area. The D.C. You know, kind of region was really dominated by Big companies that typically were government contractors, not having seen a lot of small companies emerge. So the fact that you know several decades later, it's a fairly vibrant startup ecosystem, and even Amazon picked it for its second headquarters shows the progress this this region has made, and also gives me hope and optimism for the progress other cities around the countries can can make in this next uh, phase, which is why I'm so passionate about Rise of Rest and even why I wrote the book, because I wanted people to, to hear these stories. Hopefully, it will inspire some people who have ideas to start companies wherever they are, not feeling like they're, they, since they're not in a place like Silicon Valley, they don't really have a shot. Hopefully, it will inspire more investors to pay attention to what's happening in these, in these different rising cities. Hopefully, it will lead more people in those cities, the community leaders, the business leaders, the political leaders to, to focus with more you know intentionality more collaboration on what's happening with in the in the in the startup community if we can do all that I think we can launch more companies that end up being some of the fortune 500 companies of tomorrow uh, generate great investment returns and also help renew these communities in terms of creating new vitality around some new companies and even potentially some 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 new industries and that also could be a way to to help bridge some of the divides in this country, which is you know, there's obviously lots of different things that separate us, uh, but one of them is an opportunity gap. And one way to close that opportunity gap, or at least in part close that opportunity gap, is to create more new companies that create more new jobs in, in more parts of the, of the country. Well, it, it's, a, it's a terrific read. The, the book is Rise of the Rest, How Entrepreneurs in Surprising Places Are Building the New American Dream. Congratulations, Steve, on a a great book. Congratulations even more so on the great work that you and your team are doing in fostering all that you've described uh, across this country. It's just fascinating work, and I'm so pleased to have spent a little time with you again today to hear more about um, all that you're driving. So thank you so much. uh, Thank you, Peter. It's great to be with you. Thanks for giving me an opportunity to tell the story, what's happening out there, and hopefully get others not just to read the book, but to do something to support this next uh, chapter in the American story. 